Hello listeners, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Eldridge Priest, a composer and assistant professor at SFU's School for the Contemporary Arts. Together, they discuss Priest's journey with music both as an art and a technology, his studies on the phenomenon of the earworm, and his newly released book, Earworm and Event, Music, Daydreams, and Other Imaginary Refrains. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, uh, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Uh, We have a fabulous guest with us, a faculty member with the School for Contemporary Arts at SFU, Eldridge Priest. Uh, Welcome, Eldridge. Hi, thanks, Em. Thanks for having me. Eldridge, why don't we begin? uh, Why don't you introduce yourself a, a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, as you said, I'm uh, currently at the School for the Contemporary Art at SFU. I teach music there, composition. Mostly, however, I teach, and this is probably what brings us into conversation, I teach artists about theory, about uh, some philosophies, specifically philosophies of sound uh, and affect theory. So my background, however, is as a musician. I was a um, trained as a jazz guitarist, actually, many, many years ago. Uh, And then I moved into composition, studied composition before going on to do a PhD in cultural theory. Uh, So I have this kind of what I understand to be a very interdisciplinary background, a background in the the fine arts and some more advanced training in the humanities. Eldritch, as I was sharing with you the other day when we were on a little mini pub crawl, uh, was that, you know, of the different disciplinary aspects to the School of Contemporary Arts at SFU, composition being one of them, dance, theater, visual arts, film. I feel like I have a relationship to the other disciplines in one form or, or another. I've taken a history of film class. Even when I was a human kinetic student, which is a fancy word for physical education, I took a dance class and, uh, you know, have had a relationship to the other disciplines. To me, composition is something I feel maybe not necessarily the most distance from, but certainly the one that I feel that I know the least about in, in so many ways. So to me, it, it's um, it's a little bit exotic in, in some sense, particularly experimental composition. I'm wondering if you can talk a, a little bit about how you found yourself uh, moving from being a musician to getting into composition and theoretical aspects of it, because you've been doing this work for a, for a long time. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the domain of experimental music being exotic, right? Why, why I find it's interesting is because everybody, almost everybody on the planet has some relationship to music in some way, right? Mostly the relationship is one that's mediated by emotions, feelings, right? The way, it, uh, the way music affects us, right? So everyone has a sense of what, what they think music is and that they have a relationship that is meaningful. Now, I think what's strange, or as I said, interesting about uh, your remark that it's exotic is that there's this whole other world which is we sometimes refer to as art music where music has been made into something very esoteric and i think in some ways that's was done to itself right as as music began to be studied by its producers then by theorists uh, who, who produced a vocabulary that was really only meant to be understood and appreciated by the practitioners or other theorists, right? So it became very, uh, very academic in some sense uh, a long time ago. 
and at least in its art form, right? So that said, I guess this is a way of segueing into what you were asking me about my, my move from being a musician and composer into being a cultural theorist is that I think that was spurred by the fact that I was doing graduate studies uh, in music, in composition at uh, University of Victoria, actually, in the early 2000s. But I had been also taking courses in uh, literary theory, for example. I was doing some work on a course on Derrida's. And there was something about the way in which cultural theory addressed music as a, I guess we could say, to use a classic kind of uh, post-structuralist language, music as a text, right? Something that could be read uh, with respect to its position as a social situation or as a cultural artifact, right? Also, I think I, what I found was that the, the writing in literary theory, the, the writing that attempted to understand literature, was just more interesting. Like it was sexier in some sense. Uh, music theory is not terribly uh, interesting, not necessarily as a discipline, but uh, the way in which it was being written, at least at the time when I was doing grad studies, it, it lacked a certain attention to the fact that language as a material as well, right? Because it was so caught up in understanding music as the object of study. Eldridge, I'm going to pick up from, from there before I get into more of the theoretical work and some of the, the writing that you've been doing. I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit your compositional and uh, music practice in terms of how it's evolved over the years, uh, because I'm interested in asking how the theoretical uh, informs it uh, over time as well. But if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure, sure. I mean, to go way back, I started as a uh, guitarist who was very much interested in, I guess, what was called speed metal. Then I was always actually very interested in the the virtuosic element. And then I eventually moved through that kind of music into very, very rapidly into jazz, actually. Uh, as, I, as I said before, and what propelled my move from being a musician into being a theorist is that there's a just there's an intellectual curiosity i was fascinated with music as something to be not necessarily mastered but as something that has this open-ended let's say open-ended capacity to to become better and better and you know eventually i as i said i grew i grew weary of the speed metal and found jazz was something that filled that uh, that intellectual curiosity. Uh, so I moved from being a jazz musician, though, later into composing music because I just found the idiom, the idiomatic elements of jazz, not, I won't say restraining, but it not actually letting me reach or explore those open-ended possibilities, as I was saying, uh, which provoked me to move into jazz in the first place. So this evolution from being a metal guitarist to a jazz guitarist to a composer led me into this other world where I started to read people, uh, listen to people like Martin Feldman, uh, John Cage, uh, all the, the people of the New York school like Christian Wolf and Earl Brown. And it was actually through that connection, I think, that my, my curiosity was sparked even further to go beyond music, to go beyond uh, just composition, right? People like Fel Fel Martin Feldman, I don't know if you know him, um, he was an excellent essayist as well. So he was very good friends with John Cage, who was also a great essayist. But they were friends with, with all the abstract expressionists, the various poets, Frank O'Hara, for example. So I started reading all of these guys and looking at the, those, those works as well. 
and eventually my practice evolved in such a way that I was writing chamber music for very strange instruments, mostly what was available. I was in, I was based in Toronto. Uh, there was a scene there that I became involved in, which included uh, improvisers as well as people who are so-called classically trained. And it was a tight-knit community but and and what was i found most fascinating about it is that it was actually a community that had developed a kind of sound a sound that this uh, one this composer uh, great thinker as well martin named martin arnold characterized as slackness uh, or, or its characteristic feature was a kind of slackness so i suppose my music fits into that realm as well a lot of the work that i've done since especially the early 2000s has been driven by by pursuing a kind of mo- a melodic slackness. Uh, so a lot of the, the work that I write is based just on pure melody, right? So for example, from a while ago, I had this piece that I took to, to the extreme. I, I wanted to write something that was utterly melodic and only melodic and really long. And so I wrote a two-hour non-repeating melody. And increasingly, this has been the practice that I uh, pursue, sort of just this idea of melody as... I don't want to say it's like a like a pure. There's nothing necessarily pure about it, but there's something about melody as being sufficient, and uh, an exposing of certain kinds of musical parameters, things like rhythm, pitch relations, that when stretched over a long period of time have weird psychic effects. And in fact, it's this this weirdness that I probably pursue, try to pursue in my in my musical practice. And this would be a segue, I think, into the way I do theory as well, that there's a, a kind of strangeness to the, the writing that I do in language also. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about where your first book came from and the, the context in which you were writing and what you were trying to do with it. The first book came out of my PhD thesis, as many first books do. I started shifting my my work towards trying to unpack again what was it about this music I was listening to that I was involved with, right? Part of the scene I was involved with. What was it that was somehow meaningful with respect to culture at large, right? And this is when I started to become, I suppose, <laughs> disillusioned in some way. Uh, with grad studies, as as happens sometimes, so it turned into the into looking at concepts of, of nonsense, actually, nonsense and failure as a uh, as a kind of an aesthetic practice that was, let's say, adjacent to the wonderful, became the focus of my research. Right, so this book, the title was boring, formless nonsense. Is boring, formless nonsense pursued? I guess a kind of critical inquiry into the practices of the scene that I was a part of, plus also more global examples of what I considered to be part of this wonderful adjacent <laughs> uh, kind of kind of aesthetics, right? There's a quote, and I'm going to get it wrong. It's from the French filmmaker Jean Renoir. It's something sort of like all great societies are based on on loitering, and there are these themes that you've grappled with, like a failure boredom, idleness, animals and dreaming, uh, uselessness. Uh, and, and there's thinkers like Agamben who, who talk about that the you know, political act in the body is to engage in a form of uselessness because 
political activity has been absorbed into the, the body politics by the powers that be, and that the choice of uselessness or to render possible the impossible through inactivity brings back the kind of human-animal relation as well. And I'm wondering, uh, in, in terms of how you think through these questions, as trivial or as idle they might be, they are taken up very seriously uh, philosophically, I think, in the way that you're intending them to be. Which thinkers and others are you influenced by as you think through this space of liminality? I think what's interest, interesting for me about all of this is I suppose it was, a, I suppose there's something very reflexive about my approach insofar as I was, I was writing uh, music, starting to write theory, and I always felt actually a kind of sense of failure in a way that wasn't exactly clear to me. So, so part of my study was to actually look at what I think this experience of failure was actually doing, because it, was, it struck me that, that failure, uselessness, was still a doing of some kind, through a lot of Baudrillard's uh, work, some, mostly his later work, when he starts to actually use a kind of poetics in his own writing. But what struck me about his work, um, as well as people like Bataille, who's ta- who developed his idea of formless, and the, or the inform is that there's a there's a way in which opacity produces not just a jamming in the system, but it is a kind of affirmative production of of effects. And these effects have, as you said, like they can be absorbed into the body and become taken up by the kind of political uh, machinery. But I became interested in these these effects that always escaped their instrumentalization in a sense. And this is where I think my idea of failure developed to take up what appeared to me as this paradox where there are are effects like irritations, noise, let's say that's a a popular trope. So failure had some kind of, at least as I was seeing in the visual arts and a lot of literature, it had some kind of predictable effect that it could be counter hegemonic, right? So to me, the idea that failure could be perceived as counter hegemonic yet also function in the art world as legitimate aesthetic practice showed a certain kind of contradiction or tension at the heart of failure, at the heart of these things uh, like uselessness, right? So my idea around failure is that actually it can be very unpointed. And in fact, perhaps failure to be most effective can't be so focused actually as to identify a clear way of resisting norms, right? So a lot of work I drew on, strangely, was Joe uh, Deleuze's work in on the logic of sense because of the idea of nonsense that I was working with. And perhaps most interestingly, in the last part of the book where things become extremely reflexive uh, and I start working on a meta-fictive level, what drives the research around nonsense was actually studies on the occult. The some occult theorists like Austin Osmond Spare became a figure in the develop in the development of what I was considering a kind of theory of nonsense. Eldritch, you have a, a new book coming out in twenty twenty two with Duke uh, University Press. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the formations of that project, kind of uh, where it began. If you could share uh, a little bit about uh, this work. This book has a bit of overlap with my last book insofar as my last my book, Boring Formless Nonsense, also talked about distraction. So distraction propelled me into this uh, domain of uh, trying to understand how, how we listen without actually listening and actually perhaps 
this kind of non-listening is a contemporary form of listening, one that is perhaps, as we some would say, more bodily, but also takes place on non-conscious registers. For me, I somehow, I can't remember how it happened, but I found the phenomenon of the earworm, which uh, you, you know what an earworm is, yes? Yes, yes. Yeah, of course, right? So the song that gets stuck in your head uh, that repeats over and over again without your, uh, let's say, in, in, intending it to do so. This became a figure that somehow captured the essence of this uh, this distracted kind of listening that I was uh, I was after. And once I started looking at the earworm, I started to see how it connects to a certain kind of politics of the inorganic organization of bodies. Siegler talked about the way in which mind and consciousness is essentially been tied up with our mediations. So for me, I found I, I started to look at music less as an art form and more as a kind of technology, right? And the kind of technology that doesn't just shape our emotions, but shapes our thinking. Now, earworms became, as I say, politicized for me in the respect that as as a form that could help shape thinking and and also help shape our feeling it had been it had been utilized actually instrumentalized in the especially the advertising world we all know about jingles i'm sure you can sing some jingles right now if i were to ask you to to bring up some of your favorites but these things had become instrumentalized in a way that our distractions were not letting our mind actually wander, but actually our ability to distract had actually been captured, right? So our cognition, our ability to think, our ability to remember becomes a form of surplus, uh, surplus value. So all of that is to say, <laughs> I, I turned to, I turned to, as I said, turned to music less as a, as an art uh, object and more as a technology and one that uses the imagination. I actually wanted to ask what role the imagination plays in uh, in contemporary culture now, whether there is space for things like mind wandering for ultimately, which brings me to the part of the subtitle, right? daydreaming, daydreaming as something that is not necessarily uh, useful, but actually this, this leisure activity that in some ways is valuable for its complete and utter uh, inutility. Uh, now that said, part of the the work I do in this book is looking at how daydreaming itself, like earworms, have been have been captured and recuperated. This idea that has developed over the past twenty years about the brain and what's been called the default mode network. So with the brain, when it's not being tasked, been found to uh, light up in such a way that it's suggestive of a, of a coherent network. And brain scientists have said or have asked what is the psychological cor- correlation between this network and our experience. And they found out it's, or they've decided that it's daydreaming or, or mind wandering. But of course, the kind of positivist inclinations of many brain scientists is that this has to be good for something. It, clearly we have, the brain has to, has to have evolved this network, um, this very prevalent network, because it actually flares up, it it can be shown to be active about 50% of our waking hours, Um, it must be good for something. And so there's been a lot of dialogue about how the brain at rest is processing memories, rehearsing for the future, developing our sense of self, uh, or some kind of coherent sense of self, right? So it turns out that the brain at rest is never actually resting at all. It's actually working all the time. 
and some of the critical language that has been, or some of the critical work that's been done, and which I've tried to do in my book as well, is to suggest actually that this idea of the brain at rest, which is never not at rest, shows the a similar logic that informs a lot of neoliberal orga, uh, organizational models of labor, where le re leisure and labor blend into each other. So the brain at rest is never actually resting, is actually a kind of creep by a, a, neo, a neoliberal discourse or episteme, I suppose. So, so part of the work that I do in my, uh, in actually all of my books and my new one as well, is write, writing um, what I call, and I'll use this expression sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, theory-adjacent type of work. So it's, it's informed by a lot of critical theory, cultural theory, uh, philosophy of experience, philosophy of mind. But my approach is not to necessarily write like a, uh, a typical scholar. Now in Earworm and Event, my new book, I take that, that step a little bit further. I don't make it more meta, but I do produce a kind of approach to, to scholarship or to, to research, let's say, also maybe just to thinking in general, critical thinking in general, that, that tries to skew the idea of language being a, let's say, a means of transmitting signal, right? So I make actually the medium of language of, and the practice of writing a, a kind of compositional gesture, one that I recognize is, is composed and is a created kind of thing, right? So this is, so the book itself uh, articulates that in, in the way that it's actually bound into different uh, ways. It's, it's the Tet Besh binding, right? So one half is an earworm book, and when you flip it over, the other half is the event book. So this is actually a part of this practice of how I, uh, of how I do research, by, uh, which is a way of essentially turning scholarship into a kind of creative affair. Uh, when you were talking about advertising jingles and things, uh, I started like uh, thinking back in my memory of something that was still in there from another era. And the best I could come up with uh, as the best thing about waking up is Folgers in your cup. Oh, yes. Like, nice. No one even has instant coffee anymore, but that was like you know, was from the <laughs> 80s or something. And it's still right. in my head or the theme song from Cheers or something, something like yeah. that. I'm wondering if you can talk, uh, Eldritch, a little bit about how, you know, being at a university uh, teaching, you know, you're your around grad students and our graduate students, how that informs or, or shapes your own practice in terms of looking at uh, emerging composers, the questions that come up in a, in a pedagogical uh, sense, how that you relate that to your own research. To talk about the relation I have with the students is that I ask students to to actually pursue their thinking and their uh, research in these, uh, for lack of a better term, like an experimental way, uh, a way in which you understand that theory entails a certain kind of uh, fictional practice, right? Where you, you develop your methodology by inventing links between certain thinkers and certain objects and how these objects resonate with other objects and can exemplify certain theoretical practices, but, but using various rhetorical maneuvers, right? So this is, this is something that I, that I bring to my students. So I don't know if that's me being influenced by my students so much as me, I think, trying to influence students. And I've had fantastic results. Some of, this, some of the work my students have done has been quite extraordinary. I have to say, though, I'm not, I'm not alone in this practice. There are a number of people in, 
this area that I'm working in who follow this practice, and particularly the people in the experimental theory band. I have to say, to be to be completely frank, is that uh, I'm actually n- newly teaching music here. Usually, I've been teaching uh, sound studies, as I said, or critical theory to the to the students at uh, the School for the Contemporary Arts. So my relationship to uh, the music the music area has been tangential in in some way. Being situated in a place like Vancouver, which has its own histories around uh, composition and experimental work and Vancouver New Music and other places, how you, having been in Vancouver for a number of years now, how you characterize or situate the scene here and how it also informs your own practice and, and thinking. In some way, my practice was put on hold uh, over the past 10 years uh, as I pursued this academic career. Uh, and it's only been in, I don't know, the past two years that I've really come back to uh, to my own practice, uh, started writing again, producing sound installations and various you know, solo works, what we might call chamber music. So I, I feel in some sense a little bit distant actually from the from the music scene closer to the experimental improv music scene i have a, a ensemble with brady cranfield called alfred jerry after the great pataphysician uh french pataphysician of the late 19th century and we we are part of the, we participate in this uh or in that in that scene which is thriving actually it's 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 i think there's a really strong experimental improv uh improvisation scene here that i suppose has been more directly in has influenced my uh practice uh in vancouver at least and i wanted to come back to this question about your interest in paraacademic projects and and work that you're developing that's uh, likely to come in the future uh, around this idea of the idol lab, I'm wondering if you can speak about about that. The aim of this of this lab, I think, yeah, it's been, it's been a long time brewing, and it comes from my work with, as I said, the earlier I mentioned the culture, and this is a group that I started, I founded with David Chiquetto and Mark Carew, both of whom teach at York University. We started this group in 2013 back in Toronto when I lived there before moving here, and it was essentially. Uh, a group that was, I suppose, a, a kind of para-academic study study group. I call, as I said, I call it a theory band, and it was like that because so much of what counts as knowledge or what counts as significant is actually generated in its social setting, right? So the things that David and Mark and I talked about took on importance simply because of the fact that we created, you know, a very micro community. And part of the culture was a way of maybe formalizing this in some sense, formalizing the sense in which knowledge is something that is practiced in a social, uh, or it has, let's say knowledge has a sociality to it. But we also wanted to produce a space in which that sociality could be much broader than the three of us. So the culture started producing a conference actually back in 2013 as well called Tuning Speculation. And this was a conference that brought in people from actually all parts of the globe. Uh, it, was, it was held in the array music space. Uh, so off campus, uh, we, we decided intentionally to not have the space take place at a university or, or on a university site. So it was downtown Toronto. People who were affiliated with universities presented those and people who were not 
affiliated with the universities presented as well. Uh, and so part of the, the spirit of this was to create um, a space, as I said, to create a kind of larger sense of the social uh, networking or kind of the social ecology of ideas, but also to advance the the experimental approaches that that we were taking to writing about specifically about a lot of us were writing about sound sound art aesthetics and sound studies at that time the aim of the idol lab or the daydream lab whatever i'm going to call it uh, is trying to build on this practice somehow one thing i want to do is you know it's it's called the daydream lab the idol lab i want to explore the, i guess the powers of leisure of loitering the expressions of leisure and loitering as they exist now and are being co-opted, let's say, by various forms of capitalism. But I also want to try to establish a game in, in Vancouver, because it's, even though I've been here five years, I say I, I say I feel like a little bit disconnected from the community in some regard. And that might be due to the fact that uh, the institution that I'm in, well, university is such an institution that so much of our energies and our purview is kind of restrained by the various obligations that we have to the institution as well. So ideally, this lab will start in, get started this fall. And going to, along with uh, one of my PhD students, we're going to try to organize a conference. Eldridge, uh, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Below the Radar. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. I think I feel like I've talked enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Head to the show notes below to order Eldritch Priest's new book, Earworm and Event, and learn more about his work and his studies. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.